Nightmarica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we are doing, please consider supporting patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers. Welcome to Nightmarica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhood. Episode 41, The Burbs. Oh, hello, hello, Nightmarkins. I'm your host, Aaron Sagers, journalist and paranormal pop culture expert and basically researcher of all things weird and currently appearing on Travel Channel's Paranormal Caught on Camera. Very excited for this episode because of the co-host that I'm bringing in today, a old friend of mine, who has her own podcast, because apparently I I am only friends with people who have podcasts. That's kind of the deal. That's kind of how I roll these days, I guess. But let me say that she is often described as creepy, but definitely cool, or a genetic experiment that spliced the DNA of Morticia Adams and Mrs. Roper. Noel Z. Masari is a Portland-based writer, actress, comic, and co-host of the Ghost in Hose podcast. And I'm happy to have her here. Z, Nawal, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's Uh, been a long time. It has been a long time. And uh, did I overpronounce the hose and Ghost in Hose? No, that is exactly how you do it. Yeah, you go ghost and ho. How long has this? Obviously, let me also give a shout out to your co-host, Danny, who I know. Yeah. How long have you guys? You you just how long have you been doing this? The podcast. Yeah. Um, it will be two years in, next month, actually. Two years, and okay. what is? How would you describe the basic format of? Ghosts and hoes. <laughs> you have to say it like you're singing it, kind of, uh, like Step Brothers. So you know the song Boats and Hoes from Step Brothers? Yes. That, that's act- exactly where the name came from. Oh, uh, why don't you do it for me? So you just have to say it like, Ghosts and Hoes! <laughs> oh, okay. You don't have to, but it's really fun to do it that way. I'm going uh, dramatically with the hoes. I, Each I time I that. say it, I like to spread it out even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just you entertain know. me, okay? Just, you I mean, know. It was just the way you said it, the phrasing, and it was great. Um, no, so our show is a true crime paranormal comedy podcast. Um, each week we share two different stories, kind of similar to this. Um, there's never a theme. We don't pick like this week, it's going to be murders from this town. No, it's just, we surprise each other with different stories. Um, sometimes they're really rough and we have to, you know, make jokes somehow about things that are uncomfortable. Cause that's just how I make myself feel better yeah uh, but, yeah and we've been doing it like i said two years um and people are like well there are already a million podcasts that are about true crime i'm like yeah okay but 
a lot of the true crime and paranormal podcasts aren't done by paranormal investigators. So. Right. Well, yes, so this is a paranormal and true crime podcast. And my co-founder, Britt, who has moved on to some other projects, but when we first started this, the idea was really to be... Yeah, to have a different kind of perspective on both topics. But she was more of the true crime aficionado, even though mm-hmm. I, I know a lot about true crime. I would definitely say that that was more of her category. So now I'm picking it up a little bit. And even even when Britt would tell the stories, I would find some of them were really dark where I'm like, whoa, I'm just going to I'm going to need a breather now. Let, can yeah. I just go back to ghosts and goblins and whatnot? Because sometimes the gore is little intense. Yeah, yeah, we recorded um this week's episode last night and it was rough. Uh not my story, Danielle's story this week will be a little a little rough um she talked about Samuel Little who is the as of now and hopefully forever uh the most prolific serial killer in the United States. Right. So Yikes. Oh, there you go. Well, that's, that's a teaser for the new episode. Yeah, tomorrow. And and you guys lean on comedy as well. See, I'm not funny, so I can't lean on the comedy part. I'm just screwed. It's just like spooky stuff and, and terrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, the comedy mostly comes unintentionally because... The, the, you've, met, you've been in a room with both of us at the same time. It just kind of happens. Um... And, but I also do it professionally, or I did in the before time. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I I will say that even though I've known you for a long time, I did not. I was not so familiar with your deep hatred of Gwyneth Paltrow until I started listening to the to your <laughs> podcast. There is there is a, a significant amount of airtime. It's not really airtime anymore when it's podcast. I don't know what we yeah. call it, but there's there's record time dedicated to your deep and abiding loathing of Gwynny and goop. Yeah. The we triple G is what we call it. Even though that's a Guy Fieri show, ours is not grocery games. It's the Gwyneth goop game uh, where our producer Randall will go onto the goop website and we kind of play uh, the price is right with stupid things from her website which is like that makes no earthly sense ma'am nobody is gonna buy a mystery priced watermelon satchel that was that was the one that i think most incensed danielle recently right (laughs) until there's that moment where you're going through life and you're like if only right this moment i had a watermelon satchel i really need a handmade leather watermelon satchel right you know who would need it i guess jennifer gray dirty dancing like uh she baby would need it she carried a watermelon carried a watermelon if she could have carried it in a watermelon satchel and that would have made life easier well let me dive in first off let me just i know this is a audio medium but since we are also recording video i happen to notice that you've gotten a little bit dark and i don't yeah. know if that's your story but uh, your lighting seems to have gotten a little bit darker yeah, here i i turned the light off for just a second because it was in fact blinding me oh and, there you go uh, let's see let me get it back up there that's better but yeah it was it was real harsh in my retinas 
blinded by the light and indeed was but now i can see your really nice long claws that you've got there so those are looking good again this is an audio medium so it's kind of anybody that's listening that wants to see your claws i guess they'll have to go to your instagram page yeah, right and see that there. they are there and also i'm glad this is only audio because i look like a feral hobgoblin well we are putting some video of this up on like a patreon page so. I mean, i'm not no I, this is what i look like when i go in public so it's well fun. before we get into the topic I'm springing something on you. I have two headlines and from the the weird news categories. And I'm going to read the headlines to you, and then you pick, and I will tell you one of these stories. Are you ready for this? It's not really a hard task. I am ready. You ready? Okay. Headline one comes to us from CNN. U.S. intelligence agencies have 180 days to share what they know about ufos okay there's that one and then the other headline is from the strasby and badenoch herald sure right and it's mother and daughter report monster sighting on loch ness bringing the total for 2020 to 13 that one so that one okay let's dive right (laughs) into that it's very these were both headlines that were not even very mysterious because they pretty much said exactly what was happening. But okay. as 2020 drew to a close, another Nessie sighting was recorded, bringing the total this year to 13. The last-minute entry on the official <laughs> Loch Ness Monster Sightings Registered was submitted by local residents Louise Power and her mother, Jennifer, Jennifer McCray, after a walk along the Great Glen Way above temple pier and this was on november 15th which is my birthday i didn't know this actually that's my birthday i mean i knew it was my birthday i didn't know this sighting took place on my birthday and they said they saw something strange in the water less than half a mile away from where they had gone for a walk there was a wake after it and during that time it did not disappear it just kept moving slowly then it turned towards doors doris doors with a big wave and just went under the water and disappeared. She said, I couldn't believe it. It was quite big and whitish gray. I couldn't put an exact size on it other than that it was big, huge. Um, there's bad Scottish. I try to work in one bad accent every episode, so we'll check that off the box. We both lived here all our lives and have never seen anything like that before. And Gary Campbell, who keeps a register of encounters of Loch Ness Sightings.com, said, although visitor numbers to Loch Ness and its attractions have been severely curtailed due to the coronavirus pandemic, it was still a strong year for sightings. So what's your take on this, C? I am super into it. I love a cryptid and really genuinely am intrigued by the Loch Ness Monster. Like, I think I was in maybe third grade when we were learning about dinosaurs and everything. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I don't know, because it was a long time ago, the Loch Ness Monster got brought up. And so that's kind of, that was kind of like my first introduction to cryptids. Right. And so I found it fascinating ever since i'm a big nessie fan 
I've I've mentioned this on the show before that I did live briefly in Scotland and took a quick dip into the lock when I went up to visit because I just wanted to say, well, I, I've done a little bit of swim in the mm-hmm. lock and it was very cold. I didn't see Nessie though, but the I I love Nessie. My I'm really rooting for Nessie to still exist because there's been a lot of a lot of talk in recent years that perhaps she has or he he she has died in the ensuing years or that global warming killed off Nessie. So I'm really pulling for Nessie to still be with it. Same, same. I took a random class in college um, that actually was a li- like sort of about cryptids. It was by one of my science teachers. Um, and so that was also interesting. And he was trying to debunk Nessie and he was not able to do it. No, get yeah, which is also just like not cool. Right. I mean, as a scientist, I kind of got the point of it, but he's like, there's I can't prove that it doesn't exist, right. but I can tell you that it was if it's a real thing, it is most likely not a plesiosaur like most people believe because I think his reasoning was that they lay eggs and they've never found like, I think they had to go on land to lay their eggs. Oh, okay. But, like a turtle. Right. Um, but they'd never found one. I don't know. Considering the prevalence of river serpent myths and folklore across mm-hmm. the globe. Yeah. And every significant body of water pretty much seems like, you know, indigenous Americans tell a lot of tales of these. I think Nessie goes back to something like 1100. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's, there's certainly... I don't know. I'm I'm pulling for Nessie or pulling for some sort of large aquatic Agreed. creature. I think it's I think it's actually pretty likely that there's something under there. Oh, for sure. And you can't rule it out completely because we don't we've only been able to explore so much of the ocean and water in general. So, you can't tell me that something like Nessie can't exist. You don't know that for sure. So, we should use our combined powers of podcasts to create a letter writing campaign to this science teacher, wherever he may be, and tell him that he's stupid and wrong. Exactly. Patrick, I will find you. We're coming for you, Patrick. You're probably still there. You're teaching... Poor children about the non-existence of Nessie. Well, let's let's move ahead to our topic. But well, before we get into the stories, what is it about the burbs? Burbs like the burbs. I grew up in the burbs. Yeah, but they're kind of weird places, right? They can be for sure. They're just so you know unassuming, and I feel like they're actually a really good spot for weird shit to go down right and you think about it really like the halloween movies the original halloween is essentially about michael myers this this maniac stalking the burbs or the stepford wives these these uh automatons these these uh are are living amongst us in the burb this unassuming you know they're just mm-hmm. fitting in or Pleasantville. Do you remember that movie, Pleasantville? Oh, that was a great movie, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, so it's, I think maybe it's the 
conformity of the suburbs. Everybody's sort of supposed to fit in and live their perfect little lives. Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands, great example. Bringing in some disruption. But yeah, meanwhile, so everybody have have, has to have that perfect lawn, that manicured lawn, the the right coat of paint on their house or whatever. But meanwhile, who knows what horrors are taking place behind those closed doors. Right. Exactly. So the burbs, uh, and then of course the movie, the burbs can't, can't talk about the burbs without the burbs. So good. Yeah. And not only does it, it's a great movie, Tom Hanks, but Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. Carrie Fisher, like, you know, Definitely after Princess Leia, still acting powerhouse, still looking really good, and Ooh, yeah. sharp, sharp comedic wit Cat on that movie. That will that is one of my biggest life's regrets. Uh, she was in Portland in 2015 at uh, a con, and I had walked by her table so many times, and I was thinking about doing the photo op or whatever. And I was like, no, I'll just get her next time. Yeah. Well, so as you as you know, I in in the before times, I, <laughs> I would do a lot of Comic-Con hosting and it was 2016. I was in Vancouver for a i believe it was fan expo and Ooh. i was supposed to host for carrie fisher now i had met her briefly years prior at a i believe a star wars day at disney mgm studios hollywood studios is what it's called now that was when i was much much younger before i was even had a career i think i was in probably high school or something but so meeting her having the chance to host for her in 2016 this was going to be the moment because that's really like that's sort of what feeds me as a professional like being on stage with someone being able to ask those questions hopefully getting someone this this sharp wit like hers hopefully getting a a laugh a smile out of her is just so fulfilling yeah sadly she had to cancel that con and she had a cold or something And again, I thought, well, I'll get her next time. Well, that next time was supposed to be something like January 2nd, January 3rd, only a couple months later, 2017. And then, of course, she, I believe, collapsed on the airplane or shortly after that. But that was around Christmas time. And then she passed away. And it's still... And I mean, obviously, her death is not about me, but it's one of those things where it's like you just miss that opportunity Mm -hmm. to have had that encounter, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, I can remember being at, like, in the convention center, because I think I was working that year. I was doing a few different panels. And so I, like, had passed her so many times just at her table. And I was like, eh, you know, because, and it was, um, oh, the Force Awakens had just come out, mm-hmm. so, and I they were filming the the next one. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just when she comes next time." Yeah, no, I I got gotcha. you. So, well, I, yeah, twenty sixteen, man. Like, year started out with David Bowie dying, and then yeah. ended with Carrie Fisher dying, and it was, it was it was hateful. Yeah, 
And then 2020. Oh, <laughs> no, boy. We're like, man, you suck, 2016. And if then, only we had known then. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, let us dive into our stories. But first, let's hear from one of our sponsors. Support for Nightmarica is brought to you by Manscaped, which is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Now, guys, it is the 21st century, and there is no excuse for not looking your best. You got to take care of that business down there. Thankfully, Manscaped has you covered with the Perfect Package 3.0, which comes with all the essentials for your grooming needs, including the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer and crop formulations. And yeah, I'm talking about ball deodorant and toner. But big news, Manscaped has also just released their new cologne scent to help you feel good and smell good all over at all times. It's called Refined, and it is light, it's approachable, it's not overpowering. Nobody wants that really overpowering scent, and this Refined is actually gentlemanly in all the right ways. It's like your wingman for the night out to keep you fresh and keep you ready for anything. It's calming, it's inviting, and this signature scent introduces a light citrus burst before settling into the anchoring notes of vetiver and a woodsy masculine finish. Also, the 50 milliliter spray is hypoallergenic, it's cruelty-free, it's dye-free, it's paraben-free, and 100% vegan. Plus, something I really like about it is it comes in a really nicely designed glass bottle, which really kind of evokes this old-school cool. I really dig it. All right, guys, look good, smell good, feel sexy for yourself and whomever else gets close to you. And good news. If you head to manscaped.com and use the code NIGHTMERICA, you will get 20% off your order plus free shipping. That's code NIGHTMERICA at manscaped.com. Your balls and body will thank you. And we are back. And I want to hear... A story from you, Z. I want you to tell me a tale, a tale of terror, a tale of mystery, a tale of the burbs. What do you got? You wanna, you wanna dive in? You wanna lay it on me? I do, I do. So I, I have told this story on Ghosts and Hoes, but I have not shared it with you and your listeners yet. And it, I can honestly say, is quite possibly my favorite story that I have told in. Almost 100 episodes of my own show. I'm glad you're bringing the good stuff. <laughs> it's even it's, if it's slightly used. I'm I'm glad you're bringing me the good stuff. I I've done it, but I knew you would appreciate yeah, it. And it's, also, uh, it's I God, it just brings me such great joy. This story. So it's so good that you're like this holds up. Mm. And also, Aaron is not paying me for this appearance, so I'm busting out one of the archives here. Also, no, no, no. It really is just that it's so good. So okay. I, uh, I had been watching a lot of forensic files at the time uh, because that's just what I do. And 
um, Hulu was like, hey, you've been watching a lot of Forensic Files. Maybe you should watch some Unsolved Mysteries. And number one, you know me so well, my TV. I appreciate you. And so I was like, yeah, I really do want to watch some Unsolved Mysteries classic. Because Robert Stack will haunt my dreams forever. Uh, just his voice and the theme song. The trench coat. The whole situation. That's kind of why I'm not like super into the new iteration of Unsolved Mysteries. I've watched them and I'm, I appreciate the fact that they didn't go with the host at all because no one could replace him. But it just doesn't have the same joy, I guess. Um, so I was watching a few episodes and getting ready to tell or I had to find a story for that week. So I went onto the interweb and looked up um, like the best paranormal episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I absolutely have to do this story. So this, uh, it was Ranker, an article from Ranker called The Most Terrifying Paranormal Segments from Unsolved Mysteries. So this is the Tallman haunting. Okay. Here we go. So Debbie Tallman was the mother of seven-year-old Kenny, two-year-old Marianne, and she was pregnant with another daughter they would call Sarah. Uh, things were getting a little cramped, so in the spring of 1986, Debbie and her husband Alan moved their growing family to the tiny farming town of Horicon, Wisconsin. Um... <coughs> So the house that they purchased was on Larrabee Street. It seemed perfect and life was great until her normally very healthy kids started getting sick on a semi-regular basis. Uh, Debbie herself was placed on bed rest for part of her pregnancy, but being very close with her mother and sister made it a little easier as they came over regularly to help out with the house and the kids. Uh, the trio of tight-knit women began to unravel over a short period of time with her family visiting less often. Uh, Debbie's sister became sick during one visit and had to leave the house immediately. Both her sister and mother later stated that the house made them feel sick and suffocated, which is never good. No, that's not something you want to put on the Zillow listing. No, that's not a great sign. Um, despite the sudden... Uh, spate of illnesses and the disappearance of extended family, the Tallmans plugged along just fine and baby Sarah was born that November. They even got a kitten, which actually had to be given away shortly after bringing it home. Why? Well, it went from being a normal, chill kitty and started to climb the walls and howl every day as soon as the sun would set. Wow. Now, I'm not quite sure if it's paranormal or just a cat being an asshole, but I mean, as cats are wont to do, no offense to cat lovers out there. None at all. But you you know what you're getting yourself into when you get a cat. But apparently it was a very sudden and weird nightly change. Right. So aside from those instances, everything was relatively normal until May of 1987, which was when shit started to get weird. The feces hit the air conditioner. It really did. So, just like any good haunted house story, this one began with fairly benign paranormal occurrences. Um, hearing footsteps, doors opening and closing on their own, 
as you do. Standard stuff. Pretty much. Uh, one night, um, Alan and Debbie scored a babysitter for their brood and went out on a much-needed date. Uh, when they got home, the sitter informed them that Kenny, who later confirmed the story, had seen a rocking chair move on its own. Um, when baby Sarah was around seven months old, the Tallmans decided to move Kenny into the smaller bedroom so the girls could share a room. Uh, and as sort of an incentive consolation prize, his parents uh, gave him a radio. A radio that would change stations all by itself. When he told his parents about it, they didn't believe him, and he decided to start sleeping in the living room for a little while. Um, Marianne, however, was loving the new room because it came with a brand new friend. And that is until the nightmares started. So both Kenny and Marianne had terrible nightmares, uh, with Marianne often saying that she dreamt of monsters. Uh, Debbie seemed to bear the brunt of the nightmares and said in a rare interview, I'd wake up in the night crying and I'd ask Alan if I was going to have nightmares like this all my life. I would dream that my kids were dying, that Alan was dying, that my father was dying. No, thank you. That doesn't, yeah. I don't like that. It sounds heinous. It's a little bleak. Yeah. How old is this kid again? Uh, well, Debbie is the mom. Okay. Gotcha. Like Kenny, Kenny was seven and uh, Marianne was a toddler. Um, so soon after she began experiencing these nightmares, both of the older kids started to report seeing the apparition of an old woman who they described as a witch with red eyes. Uh, Marianne told her mother that the witch was like fire, hid behind her door, and also said that she had seen a fire in her room, which clearly there was not. Mm. Uh, Kenny's description of the figure was later quoted in a local paper, and I hate it. Uh, he said, I saw an old lady standing by the door in my room. A little old lady, really ugly, with long black hair and a glow about her like fire. Yeah. That's not pleasant. No. Like, if I'm having nightmares already and my seven-year-old comes to me and is like, Mom, I saw this old hag in my room and she looked like fire. This is definitely, and this is one of the moments where I don't have human children, just dogs, but where if a child, if I had a human child that came to me and said this, I'd be like, well, you're on your own, kid. Sorry. Like, this is, we have reached the limits of my parenting. <laughs> Sorry about that. That sounds awful for you, but it's not a you problem. Good luck with all that. Goodbye. Like, I don't, I hate that a lot. Um, so between the three kids and the nightmares, no one was getting a lot of sleep in the Tallman house, and that was not going to be changing anytime soon. Um, so Alan Tallman... The father wasn't immune to paranormal activities that were plaguing his home either. Uh, on one occasion, he was painting the walls in the basement in what I'm dreaming was an attempt to spruce it up down there and create a rumpus room. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, just a little fresh coat of paint, get rid of the horrible haunting. Carpet. Yeah. <laughs> this will take care of it. Yeah. I love it. Um. It's such a dad thing. Such a, like, a, like a dad thing to do. Like, like, you're all 
you're all fine. Just a little bit extra, and I'm just going to go paint the basement. <laughs> like, I can just imagine it with, like, one of those old, like, Budweiser leaded mirror situations. Just being, like, a dad cave. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, for his own rep. Yeah, no. I mean, that yeah. sounds pretty great, actually. Right? Just a bar. All right. I'm on board with this plan. It sounds like a great, great idea. So, anyway, he went upstairs for lunch to take a break during his painting. When he came back down, the paintbrush was sticking straight up, handled down, dead center in the paint can. Okay. It's peculiar. Right? A little weird. I'm like... No, that doesn't, that shouldn't happen. That's not a thing. Yeah. That's not a thing that should be a thing. So not long after that incident, Alan discovered that one of the basement windows had been removed and laid on the floor. So immediately suspecting a burglar, he checked the rest of the house to find nothing had been taken, nor was there any other sign of someone entering the home. Uh, One night, Alan was suffering from a pretty severe sinus infection and had to be taken to the hospital. His mother came over to watch the kids and later told her son and daughter-in-law that she had seen two glowing red eyes looking at her through the living room window. Yeah, it's a glowing red eyes. That's never... I mean, I I think that's intentional, too. It's meant to to stoke fear. It's not... Yeah. I don't particularly care for that. Whether it's an animal or something else, I don't like it. Um, So... Before Christmas of 1987, with nowhere in their house feeling safe, Debbie and Alan decided to call on their pastor. Uh, Pastor Wayne Dobratz came to the house and said that he could immediately sense the evil that had been tormenting the family and that they may have been cursed. His solution? Yeah, he's like, I feel like there's something pretty shitty happening here. It's definitely... (laughs) I like the just total lack of like, I'm not going to... Not gonna couch this for you. I'm not gonna soften this up. Uh, so you gotta <laughs> get some evil going on here, and uh, yeah, you guys are cursed. You got a real curse problem here. I mean, it was 1987 in Wisconsin, so I'm assuming priests back then were just like, I don't have time. I'm, <laughs> busy. I'm busy. We're just gonna cut the shit and get right to it. So he told the family that they just needed to pray, sing hymns, and go to church more. And that would get rid of whatever demons the devil had sent to their house. Uh, They tried it out, despite not being fully on board with the advice. And guess what? It didn't work. Uh, That was what I was going to guess, actually. It it would be a good guess. A good guess. Uh, So following Pastor Dobritz's visit the activity shockingly increased. Uh, The refrigerator door would open and stay that way on its own. Footsteps, doors slamming open and shut, mysterious voices calling out from nowhere, more nightmares, and of course, visions of the witch. Uh, The week before Christmas, Kenny had woken up terrified on the couch to the witch standing over him. Um, Alan, at this point, had enough. Uh, He challenged the entities, and this is a quote from him. I was like a wild man. I was shouting at the top of my voice. I said, whatever is in our house, would you please leave my children alone? If you want to fight me, fight me. I mean, you got to appreciate the throwdown. I mean, I don't think it's going to lead to anything good, but I appreciate appreciate the sentiment. 
Yeah, like, okay, good job, Dad. But... But now your soul's going to get eaten. It's, it's a really terrible idea to basically go, come at me, bro, to this, an entity that's already active. Right. I mean, yes, but again, I understand the sentiment because oh, sure. you're also, your flip side is to stand your ground and not show your fear because mm -hmm. these things feed off of fear yeah. in theory. So you're just kind of screwed. You're, you're boned either way. Exactly. Um, it's just a big giant yikes. Um, so one morning in January of 1988, around 2 a.m., Alan came home from work. And gonna go on record and say that those shifts are awful. I have worked them. Um, he went inside, but didn't make it beyond the entryway before he started hearing a strange howling wind-like sound coming from outside. Um, he set his lunch pail down inside the doorway and went to investigate. And while walking around the property, a voice began to call from him from inside of the howling sound, saying, Come here. He couldn't see any reason for either sound, but neither one was stopping. Uh, he finally made his way back to the front of the house, and when he walked past the garage, it was engulfed in flames. Uh, he ran inside to grab the fire extinguisher, but when he returned to the scene, everything was completely still and silent, with no evidence ever showing that the garage had been on fire. So more flames. Yep. More fire. Ghost fire. Ghost fire. <laughs> uh, in an interview, he said it that night, then it was glowing inside the garage in orange-red. There were flames coming out uh, of the overhead door. There were two eyes in the windows. As if seeing some kind of spooky-eyed demon in the middle of a fake fire wasn't horrible enough, when Alan went to grab his lunch pail and put it in the kitchen, an unseen force ripped it out of his hands and threw it across the room. That's not, just not nice. I'm very curious about what was if he had a cool lunch pail. It was 87, right? So I'm thinking he may have had like a cool Knight Rider or A-Team lunch pail. I'm just thinking about my own lunch pail. Like if I were, like I've got a couple old lunch boxes back there, but no Knight Rider ones. Well, you were missing out. But then again, I'm glad that mine weren't tossed against the wall by some entity. Yeah, it's rude. It's a real downer. Um. So, considering Marianne and Sarah were sweet little beebs that hadn't been sleeping well with all of the fuckery going on inside the house, uh, Alan began to occasionally sleep in the girls' room. Uh, on one of the nights where he was pulling super dad duties, he was confronted by the sudden appearance of, appearance of a strange mist forming on the floor, with two green eyes in the center. Oh, good. Switching it up. Right? I'm like, okay, red to green. Hmm. I still don't like it, but for some reason it makes me feel less terrified. Um, he said, I started to see this fog on the floor. A voice came out of it and says, you're dead. Then these green eyes appeared right out of this thing, and then I saw flames, and then it was gone. So with no other ideas, Debbie called Pastor Dobratz again and had him come back to the house. Uh, when he arrived, he convinced them to spend the rest of the night elsewhere, which, to be honest, was probably less of a thing they needed to be convinced to do and more of a suggestion. She'd be like, yeah, you should just take it. You just go to a hotel for the night and then you just see a cloud of smoke shaped like the entire family. Yeah. Go to the driveway. 
just like that that call like hey padre um so all the uh extra praying and going to church and everything that you recommend and not quite working so any other ideas yeah um so they left spent the night elsewhere and returned the next day and the pastor blessed the house uh when asked about it later pastor dobrat said that I believe that my initial analysis of the entity being in the spiritual realm, the occult realm, the demonic, if you will, uh, was accurate, and I still believe it's accurate. <laughs> okay. But, all right, bro. That's a lot of words to just say. I thought this at first, and I think I was right still. Like, okay, that's unnecessary, but fine. Um, and this time, instead of telling the family to just go to church more, he suggested that they play church music nonstop. It's, I mean, this is definitely, um, maybe he's a very nice priest. I'm sure he was, but this is definitely the moment where you're like, you, you this is, this is above your pay grade. You do right. not know, you don't know what you're doing in this case. It's like, if you don't know what you're doing, just say that. Um... So they did try it for a while, and it seemed to work until a few days later when it didn't. Um, Alan was at work and had asked a relative. Uh, one source cited it as one of the Tallman's teenage nephews, and others didn't say. But uh, they asked them to come over and stay with Debbie and the kids while he had to work. Well, that night, the boy was assaulted by the witch. Uh, some say that it was the mist with glowing eyes that Alan had seen. Um, it happened in the girls' bedroom. After screaming at and about what he had seen, uh, Debbie was over it. Uh, she told the nephew to gather the children while she collected some necessities, and they pieced the fuck out of that house. They drove to Alan's work, and she was basically like, look, motherfucker, I done had it, and we are not going back to that fucking nightmare of a house <laughs> ever again. And they didn't. Uh, the Tallman family sold the house and moved elsewhere after that incident. Uh, the new residents of the house on Larrabee Street never reported any kind of paranormal activity. Now, it should come as no surprise that... Uh, word of the haunting soon spread through the small town of Horicon. Um, right. The locals started dropping by to get a good look at the house, hoping to catch a glimpse of something scary. Uh, some people claimed to have seen things, and then, of course, the rumors started. Uh, there were tales of blood dripping from the ceiling, furniture being flung across the room, coffee mugs floating in the air, and a snowblower that would turn itself on and go up and down the driveway of the house by itself which I would be super okay with. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, you know, if it's in winter, I guess, and it's taking care of your snow, but... Exactly. I mean, other times that would be too much, but if a ghost wanted to help me snow blow my driveway... Help with some just chores around the house. I would be okay with that. I'd be like, yeah. Close the fridge, though. You don't technically live here, and you don't pay bills, so that one we'll have a problem with. That's such a mom response to, <laughs> will you, will you, did you die in a ghost barn? Like, <laughs> I'm not trying to, yeah. 
die in a ghost barn. Uh, and you said you weren't funny. No, and I'm not. And that was just proof of it. <laughs> I think it was funny. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, so all of that. There are also claims that the house was a direct portal to hell. Obviously. Of course. Uh, as the story gained a little press, more people showed up to look at the house, including a man that told the local sheriff he was there Oh, to help clean the house of its evil spirits. Uh, it got so bad that at one point the authorities had to barricade the house and the street itself from regular traffic. Uh, eventually, the press... Oh, hi. I got interrupted by my dog. He was like, no, I need I you. Can, I can see that. Yes. See. Uh, my paper out of my hand. <laughs> hi, thank you. There is a universal sound of the dog collar jangle. Mm-hmm recognizable in across any medium it's true why is my hat doing things that i don't appreciate so eventually the press buzz surrounding the house died down and so did the onslaught of paranormal tourists and looky-loos some folks out there believe that the whole thing was a hoax made up by debbie and alan in a sort of amityville-esque attempt to get some cash however Uh, Despite the attention their story received, they declined multiple interviews and cash offers. Uh, Apparently, they turned down $5,000 from the National Enquirer and an invitation from Oprah Winfrey to come on her show and tell their story. They turned down Oprah? They turned down Oprah. Uh, And according to the Tallmans, they didn't feel that it was right to make any money off of their children's misfortune. Yeah, that's pretty upstanding. Right? I'm like, okay. Okay. Uh, They also lost money when they turned the house over to the bank, which doesn't really scream money-grubbing hoaxers to me. Right. Um, When they appeared on Unsolved Mysteries, which aired on October 26th, 1988, as part of the Halloween episode, it was under three strict conditions. They were censored during the interview. Their children's names were to be protected by aliases. And that all reenactments of their experiences be done by actors. So when you say censored, like they their faces were obscured? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and up until that episode, I believe all of the reenactments were done by the people that the stories happened to. Okay. So they made a little Unsolved Mysteries history. Yes, they did. Um, and also, this segment is not on streaming devices. The episode it was in is on, I believe, Netflix or Hulu, but that segment's not in it. Wow. I had to dig 
deep on the internet to find a link to watch that segment. Did you go into the dark web for it? No, thankfully. You didn't have to go that far. That's good. There's the just there's the, no returning from the dark web. Just like the gray gray web. The it just it just took a couple extra minutes to find, I think. Right, you're like it took me a long t- I had to click five it times. It wasn't find on the front page of Google. Uh no, and I actually think I found it on accident when I was looking for pictures. Um and it's like, hey, here's a link to this episode. I'm like, oh boy. Funny how that works. So you'll you'll have to send me that link. I will have to find it again, but yes. Oh, you didn't bookmark it? This is your favorite story ever, and you did not bookmark the video footage of this. I know, but I mean it lives in my head and my heart rent free. So And and but. now with all of our listeners. Sorry, but go continue. So what caused the haunting? And this is where it comes to be my favorite story. So prior to the Tallman family moving in, the house had absolutely zero history of being haunted. Uh, Did someone use a Ouija board to summon dark forces? Was it built on top of an indigenous burial ground? Was it in fact a portal to hell? Uh, According to the book Haunted America by Michael Norman and Beth Scott, the paranormal activity was linked to the property being near or potentially on a former Native American burial site. But we do not like that reasoning in this house. And I saved this part for last because it is my favorite. It just fills me with so much joy. I can tell. Next. It's so good. According to the Tallmans, they had purchased, I shit you not, a secondhand bunk bed from a shop in February of 1987. They stored it in the basement until three months later, which was when they brought it upstairs and used it in the room where uh, um, Alan would eventually see the mysterious fog and where the kids see the witch hiding behind the door. Right. Now, if you remember at the top of the story, I said that shit started to get weird in May of 87, which was three months after the bed had been purchased and brought upstairs. Extremely odd coincidence or cause of the activity. Uh, About two weeks after the final incident, Debbie and Alan had the bunk beds destroyed. Some say they burned them, uh, and some say they just left them at the dump. And they never had any further paranormal experiences after that. Meanwhile, there's like a really freaking haunted dump out there somewhere. (laughs) Some landfill that just has glowing eyes in the trash heap just haunted haunted bunk beds it's just so good i want to know what happened on those bunk beds i mean right i mean they either burned them or paid someone to haul them to a dump and just leave them there. Well, I want to know what happened. What what would lead to uh, a such a powerful haunt connected to a bunk bed? I mean, I, I I don't know if I spent a good portion of my childhood sleeping in a bunk bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, at best, I think the most exciting thing that happened is like jumping up. I was in the bottom bunk, jumping up too too quickly and smacking my head against it. Done it. At the top, but. Um, 
Yeah, and the best part, there was actually, there were, I believe, two photos of the actual bunk bed itself. And I got way too excited about it when I found, I'm like, oh, this is the best day of my life, which is honestly sad, but here we are. Well, uh, you know. Exactly. But yeah, haunted bunk beds. The devil's bunk bed. Bunking with Satan. Bunking with Satan. Uh, the, I believe the episode I talk, I first told that story in was called Demons? We got them. <laughs> I know it's... I mean, I like to do like that better than the indigenous uh, people's burial ground, which just is because the blame we pin so much blame on on poor indigenous people that were buried and just wanted to be left alone until the white man came along. And right. It's a it's a tired trope that usually ends up not being true. Yeah. In the end. So I'm like, no, that can't be right. Haunted, however. So I'm totally on board with. So just to this, the activity ended in what was it? When in 1987, May? Did you say the activity started um, in May? 87. In 87 and ended in I believe it was January. January 88. And they were already on an unsolved mysteries episode in 88. Uh, they worked quickly. Yeah, back man. Later, I guess. Uh, but yeah. Got to give credit to uh, to Robert Stack's producers on that. Right? Yeah, because it was probably because that aired in October, so you know, like six. Yeah. Months. Uh, you but can do also, it. Yeah, and then being such a tiny town and hearing the buzz, they're probably like. Get me to Horicon, Wisconsin, to talk to these people today. Well, and that's that's the other thing is the so the name of the town is H O R I C O N, right? Horicon, Horicon. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like it sounds like a a name of a town that would be in a horror movie. So, and the best part is when you type Horicon, Wisconsin, into Google. Uh, usually the Tallman family haunting is one of the first thing that comes up because I'm assuming not much else happens or has happened there. No. Well, you know, the inclusion of bunk beds is such a good burbs kind of connection. Right. Herbs and bunk beds, bunk beds and herbs. Exactly. I mean, who, if you haven't owned bunk beds, you've probably slept on them at some point. Yeah. Well, I like that story. I like it a lot. Yay. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you one next. Yay! Yay, indeed. And before we do, let's hear from another sponsor. Nightmerica is brought to you by the Smell of Fear Candle Co. You know I'm a nerd. You know this. But what you may not know is that I also like candles, and a good smelling candle can bring a lot of character to the room. And Smell of Fear candles bring a lot of literary and film characters to a room. These scents are inspired by characters and settings from stories and history. 
For example, the Telltale Heart Candle from the Essence of Poe collection smells like the infamous oak floorboards from that story, with just a hint of tobacco that I imagine that crazed narrator was frantically smoking. I also dig the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat Candle from the Cinematic Sense collection. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, and this candle puts me right in the action. It smells like salty sea air with the wood of an old fishing boat and just a hint of whiskey that Quint was knocking back. There's also the Sasquatch candle from the Cryptid Collection. No, it it does not smell like the stinky beast that we all know and love, but instead it's inspired by the heavily forested areas in the northwest that Bigfoot is said to roam, with hints of redwood, cedar, pine, and earth. Other collections include literary redolence, televised temptations, a whiff of king, think Stephen King, with more than 80 candles and counting, there are new candles being released monthly. Newer releases are Welcome to Fright Night, for real. And that smells like the fresh fruit that Jerry Dandridge was always munching on in the movie. Well, when not munching on humans. There's also Icy Dead People, an icy blend of spearmint, eucalyptus, and mint. And January's releases are a Crucible-inspired creation and something from the Conjuring universe. These candles are a coconut soy blend with no paraffin, so they are eco-friendly, organic, renewable, sustainable, and have minimal environmental impact. They are also clean burning, with almost zero soot in comparison to other types of wax candles. They're also slow burning, with a fantastic scent throw and not made with nasty chemicals. The candles are available in several shapes and sizes, as well as in wax melts. They also do wholesale, custom, and a subscription box service that features each month's new releases. And the candles are sold on Etsy, as well as thesmelloffear.com. They also donate a portion of profits to various non-profit organizations monthly, and past donations have gone to COVID relief funds, pet rescue organizations, and crisis services. It's, isn't that just nice? That's really nice. I like that. Finally, with the code NIGHTMERICA, you can get 15% off your order at thesmelloffear.com. So check them out. Smell of Fear Candle Co. They make good sense. And we are back. And, I mean, we didn't really go anywhere. I just had a sponsor break. We literally just paused for a moment. But, you know, we're we're kind of back in the story groove, I guess you would say. And I'm going to tell Z uh, a Texas, you know, let's, let's travel back in time oh. to 1978 to Wiley, Texas. Ooh. Yeah. Ever hear of Wiley? Actually, yes. I was just trying to, I'm like, have I been there? No. Really? Heard of it. Uh, okay. The small Texas town that I've been to was Tyler, Texas. Tyler, Texas. Well, let me tell you about Wiley. Wiley in 1978 was a relatively small town, suburb of Dallas, around 4,000 people living there. It has since grown significantly, in fact. But back then, it was a pretty tight community, populated with families. And and speaking of families, let me tell you about a couple of them, because it's probably no surprise that the Montgomery family and the Gore family became friends. 
After all, they went to church together. They attended the Methodist Church of Lucas, as opposed to the Church of Georgia Lucas, which I guess I have been a longtime member of. But yeah. so they and they would even babysit each other's kids. Jenny Montgomery was friends with Alyssa Gore. Those are the two young daughters, the two kids. And moms Candy and Betty became good friends. But there was tension, as all families have. In fact, Betty and Alan Gore, they were already married for 10 years at this point. Betty was described as a pretty girl, a popular girl. In fact, quote, with a wide Hollywood smile. And she married Alan, who was actually had been her college math teacher. Alan had to travel a lot for work. Betty did not like this at all, did not like being left alone. But perhaps more problematic was the sex was clinical because they were trying to have their second child and everything was on a schedule. Doesn't sound like there was a lot of passion going on. Boo. Boo. Meanwhile, Candy and Pat Montgomery, they married young and they had a couple of kids. And by the time she was 28, she was bored. She wanted fireworks. She wanted transcendent sex. So late summer 1978, during a church volleyball game, Candy Montgomery and Alan Gore made a play for the same ball during the game, and they collided. And there were fireworks because Candy said Alan Gore smelled sexy. Now, Alan Gore, he was showing signs of age, receding hairline, a little bit of a developing paunch, but Candy knew she wanted to sleep with him. In fact, she made her intentions clear one night after choir practice. Weeks passed and the two spoke, and they negotiated ground rules to avoid hurting their spouses, not to be any emotions. They would equally share expenses, gas, motel rooms, things like that, and they would meet every two weeks during Alan's lunch break and on days that Candy's son was in church preschool. The affair officially began on December 12, 1978. So, they became best friends, Alan and Candy, but the sex itself, not that great. No. Still, divorcing their respective spouses was out of the question, even though these two talked pretty much every day, met every other week, they're best friends. This lasted for seven months, about the same amount of time that Betty was pregnant when Candy... So Betty had been pregnant for about seven months, about the same time as the affair. And Candy, being a good friend of Betty, threw her friend a surprise baby shower. So early June comes around, and Alan and Candy put it on pause. And meanwhile, Bethany Gore, Alan and Betty's second daughter, was born in early July. Candy and Alan did attempt to rekindle things, but they had to call off a date at the last moment. Meanwhile, Betty tries to have sex with her husband, with Alan. This would have been the first time since their baby was born, but Alan couldn't perform, 
and he ultimately just said that he wasn't feeling it. This led to hurt feelings. Betty cried, and then she was suspicious. Okay, well, now we're heading into summer of 1980. Things all around were getting complicated. Emotions were getting involved with Candy and Alan. Meanwhile, Alan and Betty, they went to Marriage Encounter. Have you ever heard of Marriage Encounter? I feel like I have. Is it like a marriage retreat situation? It is, It's but it's run by the church. It's yes. a church retreat for married couples to allow them to rekindle their commitment and kind of patch things up. Okay, well, yeah. Kind of worked because it was a, a success for Alan and Betty. It was life-changing for their relationship. They left Marriage Encounter newly devoted to one another, and the Gores head home. They made one stop on the way home which was to pick up little baby Bethany Gore, who was being babysat by Candy. Obviously, these families are close and continue to be involved in one another's lives. Very close. Candy and Alan met one more time, and this was the end. This, this was it. They would still have to be involved in one another's lives, but this was the end of their affair, the, offend, the end of the relationship, and... You know, Candy was okay with it. Sex wasn't great. She was kind of sick of making sandwiches and picnics every time she was to meet up with Alan. And look, it was okay. It sounds exhausting for something that's just fine. Yeah. So June 13th, 1980. Friday the 13th, in fact. Oh. Alan was on a new job. So he had taken a break from travel. But... The new gig required it and required it heavily. And he actually enjoyed it. He liked being on the road. Betty hated it. Betty hated being alone. But this time was going to be different because when Alan would return from this trip to St. Paul, he and Betty would soon thereafter be heading out on a child-free vacation to Europe. It was the first time that they were taking a vacation alone and forever. At the airport... He's, it's the afternoon of Friday the 13th, June 13th, at the airport, he calls home to Betty. No response. Sometime after 8 p.m., he checks into his hotel in St. Paul. Before he meets up with his colleagues for dinner, he phones home again. No response. Let's it ring 15 times. Nothing. Now, Betty wouldn't leave home at night without telling him, would she, without telling someone... Seems very odd for someone, especially someone that hated being left alone. He calls his neighbor to knock on the door. Begrudgingly, this neighbor does no answer. Worried, who does he call? Candy. Have you seen Betty, he asks. Well, she says she did see her that morning when she went over to get the daughter Alyssa's bathing suit for swimming lessons. And Betty and Alyssa's daughter were going to stay the night with Candy's family. Wait, sorry. Re let me rephrase. Alyssa, who was Candy. There's so many names. Alyssa, who is Betty and Alan's daughter, was going to stay the night with Candy's family because Alyssa and Candy's daughter were friends. Got it. Got it. So Alan calls the house again after 10. No answer. Then he asks his neighbor again to take a closer look. Who does? 
and he sees there are two cars in the garage and the lights on in the house, meaning meaning Betty's car is in the garage. Mm-hmm. The neighbor and the two uh, the neighbor is joined by two other men, and they go to inspect the house closer and they discover the front door unlocked. They walk down the hallway. The bedroom doors were closed. And they start to open them, and in one, they find a baby, which is baby Bethany, dirty, in the crib, covered in her own excrement, clearly having been there a long time, hoarse from crying. In the bathroom, they peek their head in, and they see a dark substance on the tile floor. That's never good. Walk through the kitchen, they go into the utility room, and they discover a body, and a lot of blood. When Alan finds this out, he's still in St. Paul, and he calls Candy again to tell her the news. Betty is dead. By the next day, the small community and church are trading information, and word's getting around. Betty was murdered with an axe. A heavy, wooden-handled, three-foot-long axe. And the account that I'm going to read, this is a quote of what the body looked like. Her left arm was the first thing they noticed after opening the door. It lay in a pool of blood and fluid so thick that the arm appeared to be floating above the linoleum. To get a look at her face, the men had to walk around the ocean of red and black to get closer, and what they saw was even more unsettling. Her lips were parted, showing her front teeth, the mouth fashioned into a half grin. Her hair radiated in all directions, a tangled, soaked mass of glistening black, and Betty's left eye was wide open, staring down at the gaping black craters in her arm. As to her right eye, she appeared to not have one. The entire right half of her face seemed to be gone. Now, in this community, small community of Texas, a killer was on the loose. Now, Candy, being the churchgoer, the member of the community that she was, was talking to a lot of people. They were exchanging information, rumors, and she's on the phone with some churchgoers. She had just been outside cutting some shrubs. This was a Saturday now. She comes in, she sits down, she's on the phone, still has the the cutters in her hand, when she learns that the police found a bloody footprint. And while on the phone, Candy takes those shears for cutting shrubs and starts cutting up her own rubber sandals. Ooh. And then disposes of them. Candy Montgomery was the last person to see Betty alive, but... Her story was pretty tight. She was an upstanding member of the community. She was a friend. Until Alan reveals that they had had an affair. Then the police charge her with murder. But still, the community supported her. In fact, she received a lot of letters, awkward ones of support, like, have a nice day. But they were still trying to show support for a while. In fact, the church was behind her, and an attorney from church named... Don Crowder, who had never worked on a murder case before, took on Candy's defense. 
It said that the Collin County Courthouse had already been shut for a couple of years when Judge Ryan decided that the new courthouse they were in would not be big enough to handle the throngs of people when the October 1980 trial was to begin. And in fact, more than 250 people packed the courthouse to hear Candy Montgomery plead not guilty by way of self-defense. Now, under hypnosis, on the, under hypnosis, and then recounted on the stand, she told the tale of Friday the 13th. So it turns out that baby Bethany had just been put down for a nap, and Betty had sat to watch the Phil Donahue show when Candy arrived at her door. Candy had run down from Bible school with a favor to ask. She wanted to take the two daughters to see The Empire Strikes Back. Now, she would also then take Betty's daughter, Alyssa, to swimming lessons if, if the girls could go to the movie together. So she was just hopping on down to Betty's to get the bathing suit for Alyssa's swim class, assuming that Betty would approve to letting the girl go. And she did. Betty allowed this. And in the midst of small talk, there's a shift, and Betty asks Candy if she was having an affair with Alan. Uh-oh. Candy admits to it, but says it is over. Then Betty excuses herself, and she returns to the room with an axe. She sets the axe down and says she never wants to see Candy again. But, interestingly enough, she said it was okay for Candy to take Alyssa to the movie and then to swimming lessons and keep her for the night. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I could kind of get that because it's like, well, you are the worst, but I'm not going to take it out on my kid who is friends with your kid. They're already friends. And also I'm really pissed and mama needs to be alone in the house with some wine and not worry about the older child. Well, I, I was thinking taking children to the movies can sometimes be a very punishing experience. So maybe that was it. Like, I am so angry. I'm going to make you take my kid and your kid to see The Empire Strikes Back, and you won't be able to learn anything about the plot or about Luke and Vader's relationship because they're going to be chatting the whole time. That's your punishment for sleeping with my husband. Yes. Punishment, checks, uh, checks punishment out. for candy. Uh, yeah. Just a normal day for the kids. Yeah. So this is this is another little quirky detail of a lot of quirky details. So, okay. So you're taking the kid, going to see the movies, taking her to swim class, keeping her for the night. Betty, Candy's walking out the door. Betty then pushes a bunch of peppermints in Candy's hands. For Alyssa, it the these peppermints are a treat for the little girl because at swim lessons she didn't like dunking her head under the water, wow. and these would be given to her every time she would dunk the head her head under the water. Gotcha. I'm like and, peppermint. That seems like a weird treat for a movie, but no, this wouldn't. This wasn't for the movie. Yeah, no, I get it now. The and. Apparently, this was like a point of conversation. It came up a lot. She mm. uh, multiple times brought this up. 
So, okay, she takes the peppermints, Candy does, Candy takes the candy, and on her way out the door, Candy turns, and she apologizes. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Betty screams, enraged, you can't have him, and Betty snaps. Betty pushes Candy into the utility room, and with the axe again in her hands, swings to attack. And Candy pleads with her, Betty, don't do this. Please stop. And Betty, speaking slowly with an almost impersonal tone, says, I've got to kill you. Oh. Now, again, this is recounted by Candy on the stand. True. Betty does manage to cut Candy's toe, and then the two struggle for control of the weapon. Candy gets it back. Candy now in control, and with Betty blocking her exit, lands a blow to Betty's head. Candy thinks that Betty is dead. There's blood everywhere, obviously, at this point. Candy goes to exit, but when her hand grasps the door handle, Betty crashes into her from behind with her whole body, and the fight is on again. And Candy is struggling with Betty. Candy said she only wanted to escape and Betty only wanted to kill her. Again, she says, Betty, don't. Please let me go. I don't want him. I don't want him. And then there is this moment. So many cinematic moments of this. And then there's this cinematic moment almost where Betty places one finger to her lips and gripping the axe with her other hand deep from within her throat, she's utters a long shh. I don't like that. Now, it's Candy who snaps. Something wakes deep inside of her and they fight again like maniacs over this axe, trying to gain control of the axe and then Betty falls but tries to lunge again at Candy And Candy responds with a swing, and another swing, and another. In fact, 41 chops. Oh, that's that's a lot. Well, the police said 40 of those landed while Betty was still alive. Oh, that's too many. The shush delivered by Betty? Houston psychiatrist Dr. Fred Faison said it was a trigger to a repressed trauma when Candy was four years old and she was beaten by her mother following a tantrum. Now, when Candy Montgomery was on the stand, when she entered the courtroom, her hair was short and wavy. She wore earrings and a loose-fitting blue dress. She was very subdued. Hemline well below her knees. Shoulders were draped by a white sweater. So reports say that she was soft-spoken, clipped in response, very restrained. But then her lawyer presents the axe to her, the murder weapon, in court. She tries to refuse it. The lawyer forces it upon her, and that's when she lets out this wail and breaks down. Well, the jury delivered a not guilty verdict in less than four hours. 
they agreed it was self-defense and that candy awoke this repressed trauma and meanwhile the result of this is that this story now 40 years old is notorious infamous in texas in this dallas suburb alan gore remarried actually pretty quickly after the trial that ended in divorce apparently betty's parents were said to have raised the daughters Alyssa and bethany and the montgomery's moved away from texas and in 2010 the dallas morning news reported that candy had become a counselor but she wouldn't respond to interview requests and in 1984 the book Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs came out by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. And that's where I drew most of this information. It's a fascinating book that really puts you right in the scene and really incredible book. And it actually became the source material for a TV movie called Killing in a Small Town. That movie starred Barbara Hershey as the candy character. And she actually won an Emmy and a Golden Globe for it. And interestingly enough, now, and this is very recent, Elizabeth Moss from Handmaid's Tale and Mad Men is, and The Invisible Man is going to star as Candy in a Hulu limited series about this case. And that has, I don't believe, has started filming yet. But the Hulu deal just went through recently. Oh, wow. So murder in a small town in Texas, axe murder. And I got to tell you, there's so many scenes to this tale that just seem like it was scripted by someone writing a horror movie. The, yeah, the, the shush the the lunging for the axes the kill, like landing a blow thinking they're dead walking away getting body checked after that the yeah. the the how close the families this this one just blew me away when i was researching this yeah i haven't heard of that story before that's nuts and it's also one of those things like you know like the the town of Horicon. The Gore family, the there's certain names that just pop up where you're like, this is not going to end well for people. Right. You're like, no, that's not that's not great. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, I know, obviously, that they they happen, but axe murders to me always feel like they should take place in like the early 1900s and before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, night like 19. 45 feels like it should be the cutoff for axe murders in my brain for some reason. I don't know why. 1945. Got it. Well, we should let all future axe murderers know that. that like, no, this is to get with the times. I just, a lot of people don't really have axes. I have an axe. As much as they did back in the day. Why do you have an axe? I feel like that's not something you need. I've acquired various tools throughout the years i also have a cricket bat um well that one i can see that one makes more sense i have a sword i have a you know i have lots of lots of things you never know when the zombie apocalypse is going to happen you need to be prepared I, mean, in all the, fairness, I have a, an old pitchfork in my garage and uh 
I always forget which one is which, but I actually have both a sickle and a scythe. So right, so that should be retired even before the axe, because that's really something you use only when you're when you're storming a castle, when you're trying to go kill a monster that's yeah. in the castle. Um, that's that's the pitchfork. That's the angry mob. It's that- true. Uh, I needed it for a photo shoot, and also, I don't know if it makes it more acceptable or weirder that it actually belonged to my great grandpa. Well, that makes it cooler, actually. <laughs> but yeah, okay. I have my great grandpa's pitchfork. Yeah, that's that's some good pitchfork. You get good pitchfork credit out of that. So yeah, I I think these are both crazy tales from the burbs. Definitely, the burbs. They're not as uh, they're not as calm as you would expect them to be there's always something under there yeah so well with that said we can wrap this up we've been going for a little bit but before we do first off i'm gonna get do you have any pop culture recommendations anything you're really into right now that you're watching that you're liking um It all kind of just blurs together. I recently, I've just, you know, I feel like I've watched everything on streaming right now. Yeah, you've reached the end of the streaming universe. Yeah, so I've just gone back and uh, started watching Cougar Town. Okay. Um, I haven't watched it yet, but I've been meaning to um, because I have to download Sundance. their app uh but des starring david tennant uh which is about it's a mini series from itv uh, about dennis nilsen who i covered and wow yeah if you are into true crime and or doctor who uh i've heard nothing but amazing things about it so i haven't i haven't watched it yet but i've also heard really great things i mean it just it, I, I don't there's no debate that david Tennant is just an incredible oh absolutely actor. exactly um uh, staged actually i'd watched that show that uh tenant and michael sheen uh did during quarantine uh so the first season is on netflix or hulu i forget which one and the second season just came out but it's not in the states yet all right so, well uh, i'm I'm digging into the uh, I've always enjoyed Ripley's believe it or not, but I was fortunate to go into their archives recently in Florida. And yeah, there's, and I've got a lot of crazy photos that I'm posting about it on my personal Instagram page at Aaron Sagers, like shrunken heads. And there's a lot more to come, but as a result, I've just been going back and rereading a lot of, ripley's history and i picked up the ripley's at 100 book and their centennial book and it's a gorgeous presentation with just so many amazing photos a nice big book that is going to be great to leave on a coffee table and unsuspecting people will be able to go and look and find you know shrunken head and and lizard people photos and whatnot, but uh, I'm looking forward to that part of the experience as well. But the book itself is amazing. So that's something I'm just for such a showman and someone that was ahead of his time and an adventurer and a guy that liked a good cocktail. I'm like, 
I'm like, maybe Robert Ripley is my spirit animal. Ooh. Maybe. I always hoped it would be Jeff. I always thought Jeff Goldblum, but maybe it's actually Robert Ripley. It could be both. It could be both. have a spirit zoo. Yeah. Well, before we get out of here, how can people find you? Oh, you can find me all over the interwebs. Uh, my personal Instagram and Twitter are both at uh, goodnightgoldie. And then you can find the podcast, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all ghosts, the letter N, and then H-E-A-U-X-S. Pronounced hoos. Hoos. And, well, I'm glad I found you for this podcast, that that you could dedicate some time to that. I hope you had fun doing it. I did. I always do. This is the first time you've done it, so now you're just lying. Well, I mean, in general, but yes. (laughs) Semantics! Don't turn this podcast into a a house of lies, a podcast (laughs) of lies. But but it's okay. You can't actually lie to me and say you had a good time. Well... you're, and meanwhile, again, this is an audio medium, but it looks like your dog is definitely demanding attention right now in the background. Both of them are, uh, but it's also because we have a little bit of a windstorm happening, oh. right, and they are not excited about it. Right. No, that's no fun. Well, you go take care of your pups. Tell your pups I love them. Okay. Hug them much for me. And... Nawal Z, thank you for joining. I love you so much. And we will have to do this again soon. Agreed. Thanks for listening. Please consider giving Nightmarica a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps raise awareness and boost the show's rankings. Also, give me a follow on social media at Nightmarica on Instagram and Facebook and at Aaron Sagers on Instagram and Twitter and share Nightmarica with your friends. If you are able, I'd appreciate your support on patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers where I also create tiki recipes, hold live streams, and share exclusive content. Don't miss new episodes of Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus. If you'd like to share your own paranormal stories, or get paranormal advice for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com.